Hello and welcome to the Joe Rest Podcast, episode 8, recorded on the 7th of April 2015. It's the afternoon and I'm in the studio, the proper studio, rather than in my car or somewhere else. And it's been over a month, I realise, since I've last done this. And I just haven't really had much to talk about, I suppose, because it's just been really boring. I've just been working loads. So uh, I kind of said that I'd try and do them regularly, but it's just slipped, really. Pod fade, I think they call it. But here I am back again, and I've got a guest for this one coming up shortly. So stay tuned for that. Very exciting. So what have I been up to? Well, apart from doing two episodes of Linux Luddites and two episodes of Mintcast, not a huge amount, really, apart from just working loads. And I finally got a day off today. It was kind of Easter weekend, just gone, and I've been playing a lot with my computers and stuff, and this is the first quiet time I've had during the week, and I was hoping to have the rest of the week off while I wait for things at work to um, kind of line up for me, but I got a phone call just now, and now I'm going to have to work Friday, which I didn't want to, but you know, it's all money, so I can't complain. So the guest that I've got is Isaac Carter, and he has been a listener to Mintcast and Linux Luddites and more recently this show and he got in touch and i've been talking about how i'd like to have guests on and potentially guest hosts and stuff and originally we kind of had planned to do just the whole show together where we'd kind of both talk about what we'd been up to and maybe both discuss the feedback but the scheduling just didn't kind of work out and then it was just kind of thrust upon me and i didn't have time to get the feedback together and stuff so i just thought well we'll record it while we can and then i'll just chop it in so let's have a listen to that then. I'm now joined by Isaac Carter, who's been something of a long-term listener of Mintcast and Linux Luddites, all the way from Washington, D.C. So welcome, Isaac. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Joe. Yeah, yeah. So you reached out to me a while ago to kind of say that you wouldn't mind coming on the show to talk about something. And I said, okay, what are we going to talk about then? And you said, mm, Snowden and stuff like that and privacy and spying, government spying in the NSA. Now, you are actually a programmer, aren't you? And you've worked for the government. That is correct. I've been a programmer, not counting college. I've been a programmer for about five years now. And for about three and a half to four of those years, I was on the government side working for some contractors. Now, I wasn't doing anything to like Snowden level stuff, but I was definitely you know, immersed into that whole bureaucratic world of what is government contracting. Did it involve signing NDAs and secrets acts and stuff like that? No, it didn't. It did not. <laughs> it didn't have anything to do with that. I did have to have a clearance though, for both aspects of it. And one was just kind of upgrading some uh, military stuff randomly, nothing like technology or weapon wise, you know, it's just more paperwork. And the other one was definitely paperwork. So it's more of that kind of concept. But were you allowed to take flash drives in? I mean, were they watching you to make sure you didn't pull a Snowden and, you know, pull all the stuff off the servers and take it out with you? I'm trying to think. Uh, the second job I had definitely, or my second stint, we'll say, you definitely could not just be plugging anything in willy-nilly. Now I think about it, especially like flash drives or CDs or anything of that nature. The first job was a little bit more, I wouldn't say wilder, but I definitely was able to so like I had to upgrade a bunch of computers and we were having problems with the network. So I went and bought a switch and just kind of hooked up a bunch of the other computers to it. And I think they pinged off the switch and kind of shut it down. I think they kind of figured out that there's something on the network that shouldn't have been. But as far as that job goes, there's definitely like a whole, uh, 
there was a whole other room, you know, that we kind of did other stuff in that kind of had the uh, man trap, so to speak, where you, you can't just walk in willy nilly. You kind of walk. So you like kind of badge into the first like room. We'll say the second room, they got like the, the little wall lockers. You put your stuff up and then you sign in any guest or whatnot. And then you got a number in a pen, so to speak, badge in. And then after that, you know, you're where you need to be, but you shouldn't have anything on you. I see. So it wasn't just a case of like WGET dash R and then just wait for it to happen. No, no, it wasn't of that nature. You know, nothing quite to that degree. I did uh, watch some of the Snowden documentary last night and it sounded more like one. I think one way he was able to get away with so much is his clearance level was through the roof. I was just like dumbfounded when he said out loud what his clearance levels was. So when you're kind of that kind of person, I could see you could just basically do what you want and no one's the wiser. What, so he was the boss of the department sort of thing? I don't know if you watched or not. It's called Citizen 4. I have no no clue how long it's been out. I think maybe a couple of weeks. Anyway, I watched it. I think he he named off several acronyms that like you. So clearance levels are like not just top secret. They all kind of link together, you know, and kind of run, run on like some regular expression. And uh, he was saying that most uh, people at the NSA have about, we'll say four of those linked together. But he was, I think he said he was a sysadmin. And due to that, because I think he worked on numerous projects, he kind of had, I think, pre- preferential treatment, or he had, he had some weird acronym for it. But I understood what he was getting at, which was the fact that he, because he was a, you know, a sysadmin, he had to be, like, on multiple projects and multiple times. In other words, I could see him having a clearance level to where he could probably just go from A to B, and no one's going to question him. So, uh, yeah, I haven't actually seen this HBO documentary, Citizen 4. I keep meaning to watch it. It's kind of uh, in my queue, but there's just, you know, always something better to do. But you talked to me in an email about being really shocked at kind of how the NSA have dealt with such massive data sets and how you just don't feel that from your experience of the the government, you just can't see how they would deal with such a, a huge amount of data and, and manage to do it efficiently. So I watched the, the show last night and I'm still kind of shell-shocked from it. And uh the amount of data that Snowden said they were pulling in amounted to about 120 gigs a second. That is ungodly numbers. You know, every day they're pulling this stuff in. And so like in school and just at your everyday work of what I, I mean, what I do at programming, the numbers they're putting together is hard enough to just do one simple thing with the file sometimes, you know, we'll say like 10 gigs. And they're just pulling in, like I said, 120 gigs a second. Unlimited. These, these data sets are, un, I mean, ungodly numbers. And you just feel like stuff that you've learned, it'd be like, there's just numbers that there's like, well, even though I have all this data, we'll say, and I have unlimited servers or rack space, and I could put all this data on there, what am I going to do with all of it? It's just that the numbers start adding up to this, you know, in, you know, whatever. And the fact that they're with ease, Snowden said, trolling this data, data mining it and producing stuff that's, I mean, reasonably great, you know, sets of data and know what to do with it. And it's just crazy to imagine that the fact of like, well, this is too much data. I mentioned to a buddy today what I've watched and he kind of brought that up, you know, like that's just too much data. What do I care? And I'm like, dude, they're trolling this data like with ease, you know, and I've been doing it for years now. And we're just now like, I think on like, I wouldn't say publicly, but it just seems like now most people are kind of easy getting used to more big data stuff. And I've read up on like cloud, computing concepts and map reduce and whatnot. And I can see you being able to do a lot of that, but still with that comes a level of hardship that I just don't see how you're going to get around. But it sounds like they've been getting around it with no problem for a long time now. So that was kind of my take on the amount of data. 
But you say that, that they are, and that, that's the thing that we always kind of assume of the government, that they've got more storage than us, they've got more computing power than us, and, you know, even seriously difficult GPG keys to crack, we kind of assume that they've got the supercomputers to do that if they really want to. And this is properly tinfoil hat, and I know that I've kind of <laughs> mentioned on this show, this particular one, that I'm a little bit tinfoil hat leaning. But, like, could it be that, Snowden is one of them rather than one of us. And the whole point of it is to kind of make us think that they've got all this power to deal with all that data when really they're no different from, from you and the guys that you work with and that maybe they could just about deal with that data. But, you know, you, you're talking about more data than is, is even conceivable to, to deal with per second. So... Uh, the, the question is, are they really that far advanced with how they can crunch that data and how they can actually use it to do what they want to do? Or is the whole Snowden thing just propaganda? So when Snowden, the whole thing first leaked, it was kind of hard to believe all that. You know, I was like, wow, you know, they're really doing all this. I was kind of, not the whole traitor hero kind of attitude, but just the fact of like, what? You know, there's so much data. How is that even possible? Watching that documentary, though, if the documentary is true, which I'm going to go on the assumption it is, so it's not filmed like like right now. Like Snowden's, I believe, in Russia. They didn't go talk to him and start doing it right now. So the way it all started out in the beginning of the documentary is this film crew, we'll say the director, this director was doing a documentary over the Iraq war and what we were doing over there, you know, U.S.-wise. And she and the... Uh, her film crew were getting harassed when they were at the airports and basically crossing borders to the degree where they made a comment that they thought they were on like some watch list. Well, anyway, they said about that same time, they started getting these heavily anonymous, I mean, heavily encrypted anonymous emails from uh, someone called Citizen Four. And uh, well, I mean, of course, it turns out to be Snowden, but Snowden reaches out to them to tell them that he has a lot of info he would like to give to someone of the journalistic you know, side of the world. And uh, they were kind of asking Snowden, like, well, why did you choose us? And then, but he replies in the email that I didn't choose you, you know, you did it on your own. And then he starts sending them emails and phone calls of the government is watching them. So basically I took that as Snowden was at work and they come across this stuff and was equally watching it and like kind of contacted them through that to let them know, like, I know about what you're up to, you know, like the government's already watching you because I'm part of that watching part. So they started filming this long time ago. And to the degree of where when Snowden was in Hong Kong, they were there talking to him in the beginning. So a lot of this is like old newsreels, you know, so to speak. And that's just the whole aspect of the way he's talking and what he's saying. I just I mean, I just feel like he's telling the truth. I mean, honest, I mean as far as now as the data sets, I just feel like it's hard to comprehend. But another part of that is hard to comprehend is that working on the government side, I just worked with complete morons. And it just there's such a level of bureaucratic nightmare that it's hard to get anything accomplished so when i told my couple of my past co-workers about what i watched they even said the same thing like how is it impossible that anyone competent enough on the government side could accomplish this and i was like i got i have no clue either that's the one real isn't so much that got the data sets in my mind the most craziest part is they have enough smart people who don't have this bureaucratic layer on top of them to get things actually accomplished that's why i'm more amazed at but going back to your question i really think snowden's telling the truth i don't think it's propaganda I really honestly think he's, he's telling the truth what he's saying. But that doesn't add up, though, does it? The, you just said there that your dealings with government employees and all the bureaucracy, 
I mean, they, they couldn't even stop 19 guys with box cutters or standing knives, as we would say, <laughs> you know, doing 9-11, if you believe the official story. So, you know, what good is all of that data that they're collecting? I mean, it, it stands to reason that it's quite simple, quite straightforward, if you've got the money and the hardware, to be pulling hundreds of gigabytes per second. But that's presumably just all going in big data centers somewhere and not actually being dealt with. So, I mean, that, that's what I kind of don't really believe, that they're, they're actually doing anything useful with that. To kind of counter uh, argument on the 9-11 thing, a lot of this stuff that's going on now wasn't so prolific before 9-11. They even have someone on the documentary who was like big crypto mathematician who was doing a lot of analysis on big data and stuff but before 9-11. And he said like, you know, and he used to do this back in like, I mean, he used to work for the NSA back in the day, you know, when the whole Cold War was going on. But he even said but prior to 9-11, he was just really him doing all this and no one cared. But he said after 9-11, he was immediately like called in and starts getting all these people underneath him to start doing more. It's also when the whole uh, Patriot Act for the United States got passed, which is like, I think actually coming up for voting again June 1st. But that that act right there pretty much gives the government unlimited access to do and say as they please. So. I kind of I know what you're saying on the whole. Uh, I don't know what they're doing with it. If it's even worthwhile, and I think that's kind of where Snowden came from. Is he admitted that some of sometimes it was for good, you know? But he said most of the time it started becoming more in house. Like they started kind of turning the radar, so to speak, on their on the citizens versus like who else it might be. But I mean, that's the question. The next question that comes to my mind is, what do you think personally? Do you think that it's worked? I mean, there hasn't been another nine eleven style attack in the last 14 years so maybe it's working that's really hard question to answer honestly because i don't know if it has worked or if it hasn't i mean there hasn't been any more attacks maybe maybe the fact that we're going through this data and we're able to figure out who's who and we're stopping them there maybe maybe the fact that we're taking the war to iraq has stopped them over there i don't I don't really know, you know, as far as like. Well, I mean, uh, international listeners will probably be screaming at their headphones <laughs> right now saying, if anything, Iraq and Afghanistan has created more terrorists and has created ISIS and uh, has just created the Charlie Hebdo thing. And generally, it's been the worst possible thing that you could have done as a country. Oh, yeah, I, to- I totally do not agree that we should ever have gone over there and done any of that stuff, you know, so... Yeah, yeah, I think that wasn't like the most most positive, you know, thing America has ever done. But as far as the the big data stopping any of that, that's a really good question. I have no clue how you would even begin to answer that without being like completely on the inside and knowing what's going on. But even if you do know what's going on, it's kind of trying to prove a negative, isn't it? Because nothing has happened. So if nothing had happened in terms of surveillance and stuff, maybe there would have been no terrorist attacks. Whereas with all the surveillance there have been no attacks. So how could you possibly know that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I really don't know either. I mean, I guess that's kind of what the, the whole documentary gets around to, too, is the fact of uh, America kind of always leans on, well, you know, it's just to stop terrorism. It's like, well, you, you can't always say that. I mean, you always could say that, you know, but it's just kind of like they know that they can't be proven wrong about being, by always bringing that up. So Yeah. Well, what about the big companies then? I mean, Google, Apple, Microsoft, I mean, do you think that they are working with the NSA? Do you think that they, I mean, I heard about how the NSA had kind of um, infiltrated the the fiber connections and stuff. And obviously the companies are going to deny any knowledge of it and involvement. But that just seems kind of fishy to me, man. 
I think at first they might have been involved to kind of help out a little bit, you know, during the whole, like right after 9-11, all of America was, you know, completely, you couldn't find anything other than being anti-terroristic, you know, but so I think maybe in the beginning, everybody was kind of on board and maybe just spiraled into something they, you know, nature of the beast, they had no clue what they had kind of created. Hearing Snowden talk about some of the stuff, though, it's kind of easy to see how they could infiltrate a chunk of that because I think on the, whenever some of the uh, traffic is getting rerouted, you know, from like some of the bigger uh, internet centers, say like, I think there's one in Europe, you know, whenever the, he, he brought that one up quite often saying that whenever things bounce off from the stock, say Florida to that one back to New York, the NSA was just so really easily able to intercept stuff like that. So I think, I don't know who really owns those fiber cables that really run the ocean. I think Google has several of them. Besides that, I don't really know. And, uh, I think now, though, things have kind of changed. I think Google or Apple, someone's starting to encrypt their phones to such a level that they can't be unencrypted, which has raised a big stink here in the States with uh, some of the higher-up people. Yeah, but do you really think that the NSA and the government don't have the keys to to unencrypt that stuff? You know, that's that's a really good point. I think, honestly, they probably do. I think uh, you guys have brought up on Luddites, and I had read it about the same time where the NSA had, uh, I can't remember the name of the group, that they were hacking hard drives. And I think Jesse brought up a good point, which was once it's on your hard drive or on your computer, it's not going anywhere, no matter what you do. And when you have that kind of level of intelligence, people doing that stuff, I don't see. I agree with you. I don't see them not being able to hack anything. So, Well, yeah, I mean, you've even at the processor level and stuff and the BIOS level, we've talked about that before. It, recently, we talked about the BIOS. I mean, it, we uh, talk about running Linux, GNU Linux, whatever, free software. And even if you can get a laptop that's not any, you know, doesn't need any proprietary drivers or anything, it's still got a proprietary BIOS that could be doing all sorts and sending all sorts back. So, you know, it's kind of like you, you think to yourself, is there even any point in running free software? Yeah, I totally agree with that. After I'd read that story, I was like, this is impossible. You can't do that. And then I realized, though, uh, I think I read a how, I saw a how to, you know, on somebody's website on how to do that. And it was kind of painstaking, you know, just him alone doing it. And he admitted to it. But I mean, if you have uh, several people, you know, of, rather high intelligence getting paid quite a bit and that's their daily job. I don't see it being too hard to do that, but I mean, I agree with you. It's kind of, it's what I kind of wish I'd never read that article really. Cause <laughs> after that, I was like, what am I supposed to do now? There's nothing I can run, nothing I can do. Even if I wipe my computer with a new OS, which I always thought was like the best way to defeat anything, it's not going to do anything. You know I mean? It's just still to the point of, especially if they're tied in with the people that make the hard drives and, you know, by default, or allowing them to do it as they please. It's just, I don't know. At that point, you just kind of cross your fingers, I guess. Uh, it's very depressing. <laughs> a very depressing world to think about stuff like that is happening all the time. <laughs> yeah, even Richard Stallman's laptop, which is uh, one of those repurposed ThinkPads that's got the, um, the free BIOS on it. I mean, the hard drive that he puts in that, or the SSD, that, that's got firmware on it. And if that's proprietary, then that could have backdoors in it that are... Uh, doing all sorts of stuff that your operating system doesn't necessarily know about. So it's, it's kind of a depressing time. Like with, with the more Snowden and, and the more research people have done and the more our eyes are open to this, the more depressing it becomes, doesn't it? Yeah, I totally, I couldn't agree anymore with you right there. After I watched that documentary, I was like, I shouldn't have ever watched it. I, I thought he was telling the truth. I really think he's telling the truth now. And I'm very depressed and it's just ridiculous. You know, if, 
that's the equivalent of the world we live in now where people are just to that degree are just putting, you know, hacking every single thing, no matter where you get it or if it comes out the box that way or refurbished old stuff is, I don't, I don't know. Well, that kind of ties in almost to the, um, the, the last interview we had on Linux Cloud. I don't know if you've heard that one yet. The, the last show we put out about a week ago with Doug Hill, who's the, the author who really kind of, isn't well he's not anti-technology but he kind of thinks that we need to take a step back and and uh, you know not just trust the new technology and and have the with the problems that come with new technology solve them with more technology and it's that kind of that thing like if you were transported back to um well, to, to me, it's always 1885, Back to the Future 3. I don't know if you're old enough uh, to remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, Doc Brown there manages to make an ice cube and stuff. But, I mean, if you were transported back there, what what could you actually make? I mean, I could barely make a toaster, probably. Never <laughs> never mind, uh, you know, an i7 quad-core processor and RAM and motherboard and all the rest of it. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by all this technology and we feel like we, we're like in control of it. But the bottom line is that it's so esoteric that there are just a handful of people who actually know how it works, aren't there? Yeah, that's that's totally correct. I, I mean, it's really well, and watch the Snowden thing. I was, I, I definitely was like, this guy's like the greatest human ever lived because he wants to go back to a time when the internet was, you know, free. You know, when you could get on the computer and get on the internet and have no fear of anybody watching you. But you know, those days are long gone. But a lot of people, so I don't know if you watch uh, last week uh, with John Oliver. And uh, he brought up that whole surveillance thing last night. And um, and Snowden, he went and talked to Snowden. And a lot, you know, Snowden was saying why he did what he did and for the better of human and mankind and hopefully Americans that will wake up. But when they went on the streets and just interviewed people, no one knew who Snowden was nor cared. And the only time they cared about what the government might be up to or anytime they had an anti-government thought was if the government was like looking at their naked pictures they had sent from like A to B. So if you're not really a any technical, I mean, you don't have to be a programmer. There's any techie kind of person it's just most of the stuff you realize i mean you know how it works but most other people don't know they don't care and i'm afraid that's the kind of the society we live in now is everybody's just nonchalant just so everybody's watching everybody i mean it is depressing i mean this amount of like lenovo was putting stuff on and nsa is hacking you know your hard drive and it's just i mean you get to the degree of like i don't it's hard to move forward you just got to kind of not accept it but do what you can with it i guess i don't know how you're gonna I don't know. I'm, I mean, looking at my computers last night, I was just staring at them like with disdain, you know, like, <laughs> uh, just like, I can't believe you guys betrayed me. So, no. and then looking at my phones the same way. It's just, I don't know. Well, it's even worse with the phones, isn't it? I mean, at least with most laptops and most desktops, you have control over maybe not the bias, but at least everything above that, what you install on them. Whereas, I mean, yeah, if you get a Nexus phone, or like I've got a OnePlus One that's got unlocked bootloader. You can flash any software you want. But I mean, some of the phones that you get, Samsung's aren't too bad for it, I don't think. I've never really had one. But a lot of the time, you're just stuck with whatever software's on there. Yeah, totally. And I hate that so much because uh, so back in like, what, 2010, I was doing some like internship with some Android phones for some random military application stuff. They just want to prove, like, prove a concept. And it's so easy back then on like a first uh, Android device to kind of root it. And you got no, no fear of anything. Nowadays, I already have to drop like half a grand to get my phone. And then I try and root it and it bricks. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. So now I'm out like another half a grand, you know, to try and get another phone. But here recently, I just, uh, 
uh, so my phone's with Verizon, and they've been having this super fish cookie. I'd have no super cookie. I have no clue thing going on with when you access the browser. They just now finally have allowed like I guess a route around that, which I'm sure doesn't do anything. But I had to go online, and they weren't going to air that out to anybody. I had to go on Slashdot and read that Verizon had finally allowed people to kind of clause out of that, so to speak. And I had to go on there, sign up for it. But God knows, I had no clue that was going on until like someone broke that story out. So, yeah, the phone is honestly worse. You know, as much as I know about programming, the phone is, they move so quick, too. It's Google has no mercy for anybody that's an Android programmer because they just always update to something new. That's, you just can't keep up with them. Yeah. I mean, even if if you forget the hardware for a second, the just your connection to the internet. I mean, by default, Virgin Media is kind of the only decent ISP in this country, and I use the word decent loosely there. In <laughs> in terms of, uh, if you're a domestic customer, the only one that's going to give you 150 megabit down and like 13 up or something, 15 up maybe, uh, which by global standards is pretty good i suppose i I don't know i mean compared to like south korea or whatever that's pretty rubbish but but even so that's the best you're going to get is virgin media and by default when you buy a connection from them if you type something into your address bar and you mistype it you get their search page not your browsers like i use firefox and i have google as my default search for better or worse and I would expect that, but instead I get the Virgin Media search page. Hey, did you mean this, that, and the other? And you can turn that off, but you're still thinking, well, obviously, therefore, they're monitoring everything that I'm doing. It's, uh, and, you, you know, when you, when you think about that, you think, well, that's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? You, they, they're providing your connection. They can clearly just tap into it and look at what you're doing. But until I saw that, I hadn't really thought about that before, but absolutely every bit that you send or receive they are looking at and we talk about free software and and freedom of the internet and stuff but when your basic connection to the rest of the computers in the world uh, is being monitored like that and presumably logged and you know all that data is going somewhere in some data center somewhere again you just have to kind of shake your head and despair really yeah, that's how it is here. We got a, a few of the ISPs that kind of form monopolies, so to speak, but it's definitely the same attitude. I, I think, so I'm, I'm using Comcast, not by choice, because I think they're the only provider like this entire area, I feel like. And I don't really have any of the issue. I don't really use their homepage for searching. I think Verizon, when I had Verizon Files, another apartment I used to live in, I think they kind of, some other browser a browser plugin or toolbar plugin came by default or whatever their guys installed it just felt like he had to put it on there for me. So I definitely had some weird issues of that nature you're talking about where it was just suddenly I had a lot of extra software riding with them. But I feel like too, if you, if you opt out of uh, please don't search or please don't provide me any extra info, you automatically go on a list, you know, of like, wow, what's wrong? You know, it's just like so-and-so is trying to opt out. Definitely watch him now. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like the porn filters in this country. I mean, you, you must have heard us talking about that, how the the conservative government, which is kind of like your um, Republicans, I think, uh, the, um, you know, the right-wing government that we've got at the moment are really keen for censorship basically i mean they try and dress it up in ways of like we're trying to save the children and we don't want them to see porn and gambling sites and stuff and you have to opt out of that stuff 
if you buy a new connection with most ISPs in this country, then you have to specifically say that you want that. And I can't help but think, yeah, you go on the list of, okay, yeah, he's obviously a bit of a dodgy pervert. But I mean, even <laughs> some of the some of the most, you know, benign sites that are, are on that, and I've found ways around that. It's not particularly difficult to get around that. <laughs> but some of the sites that are blocked, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, we're kind of just sleepwalking into a, a censored internet that, that used to be, or a censored web at least, that used to be free and used to be um, just totally open to anyone. Anyone could put their stuff on there and be viewed, whereas now uh, some businesses lobby the government and make it so you can't see certain aspects of it. And where does that stop, man? That's a good question. I really don't know. Maybe when the, the comet hits the earth, it will, it'll finally see. So I have no idea because <laughs> it... Uh, because we had that, well, that whole net neutrality thing happened, and it was ridiculous how much money Comcast was lobbying, you know, for it. And but I mean, in, in the end, you're like, I hate. I mean, who do you ride with, you know? Because it's like Google versus Comcast. And you're like, uh, like the lesser of two evils, really. And at that point, you just kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say who's doing this or which one to go with. I mean, I. I like Google. I like Chrome. I like try. I try to use other browsers, but unfortunately, I look at how much Google my life revolves around them. And it's disgusting. But I try, when I try to get away from it, I just like get sucked into a, a society of where I, well now I can't get from A to B. I don't get my emails and yeah. I mean, that's, I feel so tied into Google now. I mean, I've been using <laughs> Gmail for more than ten years now. And with Google Maps and Android, I just, you know, I could try and install Sanager Mod and not install any Google apps and just try and use F-Droid. But it's how it's, it goes back to what we were talking about how you, the BIOS stuff and the, even the hard drive firmware. I mean, you can try and use free software. And, I, you know, I wouldn't, I won't log into my email even, never mind my bank stuff on OS X or in Windows. I will only use that in a Linux system that I um, am either in control of or um, you know confident that the person is in control of. That's done all security updates and all the rest of it. But you just think, what is the point sometimes of putting yourself out, of making your life harder for the sake of principles? And I think that is the main problem, really. If everybody thought the other way, more like Stallman does, that it's all about principles and they will you know, w get websites and email themselves, you know, email themselves the HTML file to view it offline. If everyone was willing to go through that hassle, then maybe the world would be a better place. But I just think everyone is ultimately too lazy and got too much other stuff to do, really. I think a really good point going on with what you said is uh, encrypting your emails. And I've tried to do that, you know, just tell a buddy or tell so-and-so like, hey, this is, uh, I'll, be, I'll be there this weekend or whatever, you know, but I, that's like one of those things I feel like if we all encrypted our emails, we'd be the world or, you know, the internet would be a safer place. But trying to get that accomplished sometimes, we just you by yourself and maybe another friend is, I want to say, really hard to do. But it's, it's definitely more pain than just the normal way of doing emails that you finally just throw in the towel. That's what WhatsApp's for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. As if, uh, <laughs> as if that's secure. People say to me, oh, it's encrypted. And I just kind of put my head in my hands and just go, oh, oh where do I start with that? Yeah, I, I just think that, uh, I don't know. With that, there's somebody says it was Stallman I was trying to think of. But yeah, that, it, encrypting your emails was a really good point of 
or the way you said, you know, because I was like, I've been trying to do that and it's so hard and I can't get any of that accomplished. And there's no one I can talk to that's even like willing to, you know, oh yeah, just send me your private key or public key. And no one's even, that's usually gibberish to almost nine out of 10 people I email, it seems like. So, yeah, not to mention all of the automated emails you get from all the services that you use. And, you know, how many emails a day do you get from just, it's stuff that you're not particularly interested in, but you're not going to, delete it because it's uh, you know from or, or you're not going to market as spam at least because it, it's from your isp or it's from my uh phone or a delivery that i'm getting like i got a delivery today and i got a confirmation of that you know and there's no way any of that's going to be encrypted and until all email is encrypted and to a point that the nsa and the likes of the nsa nsa gchq in this country can't decrypt that and for all we know, they've got the computing power to do that at the moment. E- even, um, you know, the highest level of, of encryption that you can use, I have to assume that they can decrypt it. But it's supposing that they can't, until everyone encrypts everything, there's just no point. Because if a handful of people are encrypting stuff, then they're the ones who are going to have the resources directed at them. You know, if, if they're only having, to, only having to deal with a couple of million emails a day rather than the billions probably that get sent unencrypted then they've probably got the power to do that haven't they to unencrypt them whereas if everyone who is uh saying you know oh i'm just watching the show let's meet on skype in 20 minutes like i sent to you earlier <laughs> you know if that was encrypted along with everything else then maybe we'd stand a chance but I don't know. I feel like we've been overwhelmingly negative in this conversation so far. I mean, I, I think- uh, yeah, that's, well, that's, it's kind of an overwhelmingly negative, I mean, world, you know, that you, you know, that's, that, that's really, I wouldn't say it's negative. I'll say it's just a realist version of our attitude towards kind of what's going on. Anybody that does it feel that way, I feel like isn't wiser to the game or just doesn't know. So what can we do though? Apart from encrypting our emails, is there anything else we can do to try and sort this situation out? Uh, as far as what stopping the NSA or stopping them from, uh, well, I mean, there's so much. <laughs> that's what's so sad. There's just so much, you know, uh, such a huge aspect of what to stop. Or, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, as I've been trying lately to refurbish old computers and with Linux and just trying to give them the families that are a little bit poorer, you know, or well, uh, less well off financially. That's, I guess, some some like ray of light in the. This, this dark world, you know, that kind of gives me some hope that... How do you know the parents aren't just going to sell them for booze, though, man? <laughs> hey, maybe they are. Maybe they are. You know, I don't know. But that's just, I guess, one aspect to do. I guess something we, we could do to try and encourage uh, people encrypting their emails. I guess that would just be a start. If people would just start encrypting their emails, maybe that would be a movement forward to something more positive. Well, I've always said about that. We need someone who's much cleverer than me, who knows a lot about programming and crypto to come up with a simple way to do that. And, and you know, Google have tried and a lot of people have tried, but I think ultimately you've got this problem with encryption of emails that it's either good or easy and you can't have both. It's either well encrypted or it's easy. You, there is no middle ground. You can't have both. Yeah, yeah, you're, <clears throat> you're totally right on that because, I mean, encryption in and of itself is so confusing. And then getting to do the email scene is like equally, I mean, it's hard enough to get my grandmother just to understand how to send a regular email, much less, hey, here's your, my private key, grandma. So on that sense, I don't think it'll ever be easier. I, I just, I feel like if someone comes with it, I just, I just don't think it'll ever be easier at all. Uh, hopefully, maybe one day it will be, but it's, I, I definitely won't be the person to do it. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be someone like Google, right? 
I mean, they've got the best engineers in the world, the best software engineers. And I'm fairly sure that if they really, really wanted to, they could make sure that all Gmail was encrypted. If Google was to make it easier, would you would you put on your tinfoil hat and be like, oh, they're watching this or something like that? Or would you start using it? Well, I would definitely put on my tinfoil hat and say, <laughs> there's no way they're going to do that because I'm sure they're technically capable, but it doesn't make business sense because the whole business model of Gmail is to scan them and not have someone sitting in an office somewhere scanning them. I'm talking about robots, software scanning them and giving you adverts. And if it's all just gibberish, encrypted gibberish, then they're not going to be able to, you know, if, if you send someone loads of emails about going fishing, you're going to get, you know, tackle and bait uh, email <laughs> adverts on the side. And you're maybe going to click them and make Google money because they are an advertising agency. That's what some people forget. They think that they're this, this corporate, um, you know, computer, digital, whatever. They're not. They're just an advertising agency, just like anyone else, like Saatchi and Saatchi in this country or whatever. And they make money from advertising. And so it's not in their business interests to encrypt email. And similarly with Yahoo and Bing email and, and any of the other email providers, they, there is no money in encrypted email, is there? No, you're totally right. There isn't. And that's like, and that's usually what drives everything is money, especially on the software side of the fence, unfortunately. So, well, in every aspect of the world, man, is driven by money. We live in a <laughs> horrible capitalist society, and we, it just doesn't look like Star Trek times of communist utopia are going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no, yeah, you're totally right on that. I don't think they, uh, I don't see Google doing it anytime soon. I don't think I see anybody doing it anytime soon. So I'm afraid though, what's going to happen with this is totally like, you know, moonshot attitude here of mine, but I feel like what's going to happen as far as the whole uh, people are, people are always worried about AI, you know, this and that. And I don't ever really see it being an issue. I feel like though, when it comes to crypt, you know, cryptography and issues of that, I think that's where we're going to kind of screw up. And this is my mindset. This is hopefully not getting too far off subject, but I'm afraid we're going to start letting more software drive encryption and making it more advanced to the point of where it's so far beyond any human recognition that we just don't have a chance anymore. And I'm afraid that's definitely like, that's definitely a tenfold hat mentality, but I feel like that's the one aspect of AI that I'm, I'm kind of somewhat not worried about, but I'm definitely like, I know we're going to easily do it because it's like we, like we're talking about, it's, it's rather advanced to understand it. It's definitely hard as heck to write any code for it. I feel like I always default to any libraries by any language or framework that have it already for me to tie in with. We'll, we'll uh, default more to letting computers do that for us. Well, we're kind of almost there at the moment. I mean, it might not be computers, but it's a few computer-like minds. I mean, look at OpenSSL, man. We, we just trusted that that was fine. And hardly anyone could actually read that code because it was so complicated. And there was a few... Sheldon Cooper types or whatever who could actually read it and th the reality is no one else could until someone actually looked at it and realized that there was this huge problem and so yeah once AI is in charge of that stuff then who knows what's going to happen they they could be not even backdoors but mistakes in that AI that then just continue through the software and even if there are backdoors in it who's going to know because the, the the kind of software that even the most genius developers and programmers can write now is beyond almost everyone else and by the time a, a genius programmer writes an ai that can then write software forget about it as you say who's going to be able to read that no one it's just reaching a point you know on the 
encryption side of the fence that it's just getting so advanced and kind of with the open SSL hell I mean just using open SSL to create your own cert is hard enough sometimes much less figuring out the source code for it so that kind of goes along with uh was it the shell shock bug we kind of just defaulted to like oh yeah bash everything's good to go don't worry about it and then like years later it's kind of like there's a massive problem but that's just when it comes to open stuff you just kind of unfortunately take it for what it's worth we just don't sometimes realize who's all touching it yeah i mean there was a we talked about a bug in the x server that goes back 21 years or more i mean just because it's open source doesn't mean people are necessarily looking at it and checking it out you know i think it's almost harder to do that with open source well so, well mainly because you just don't have the time i feel like to do stuff of that nature and look at it and you just you're trying to figure out what's what and it's kind of easier to, to butt heads because well it's open source and, and there's really no money driving it you know so versus like any code you might do at work or something it's easier to look at that and like give two cents and everybody weighs in on it because it's new and shiny and that's what we've talked about on luddites <laughs> since the beginning a year and a half ago is that people are not interested in old code they want new shiny things and they they just don't care about the old stuff i've been trying to read up on the uh, linux kernel and uh programming for it and it's you know, it's hard to, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of uh, resources and books out there for it, but equally, it's definitely hard to talk to anyone I know about, like, what have you been up to? Oh, I've been trying to, you know, code on the kernel some. It's just like, Lord, man. And then it's written in C, which isn't like, you know, the most fun thing to go program in. So I know what you mean by the old stuff. The new stuff, like a Node and any of, and JavaScript right now is as hot as, it, as, you know, ever could be. And most people are playing with that in Python, so... You know, anything that's not in those languages. I mean, look at Linux Mint. It's written in uh, Python. A chunk of it is. So, I mean, it's easier if people want to jump in on that versus, like, looking at the kernel, which is written in C and uh, and Bash. You know, I mean, no one wants to play with that anymore. Mm. Well, before we wrap it up, I mean, getting back to that then, what what do you code in? I mean, what, what do you deal with day to day? For the longest, I've been using Java which isn't too bad. I know I'm a Java slave, unfortunately. And I didn't, I didn't mind Java until Oracle bought it. And I hate Oracle and what they're doing with it. And they kind of turn it into like bloatware 101 and I'm getting very sick of it. And I'm definitely more I'm getting to be a more bigger fan of, uh, any of the JavaScript flavor stuff. Uh, there's this, uh, there's the main stack out there, which stands for Mongo express angular node. And uh, it's basically just a whole stack of just the JavaScript flavor from A to B, A to Z. And I've been trying to play around more with that, you know, on the side. And uh, as far as work stuff, it's mainly Java, Spring, and uh, anything of that nature. And at home on the side, I try and do stuff such as uh, Python, Node. I'm trying to help out on the mix for, on the Mint, on the Linux Mint front, I should say. But it's uh, I just got to get more up in depth with Python and. Uh, no, it's pretty hot right now. I like playing around with it. It's pretty, it does a lot. Well, I'm a big fan of less code, more power. Java is lots of boilerplate code, no power. And I'm getting sick of that very quick. So, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Well, so um, I'm pretty sure that I will have more involvement with you in some shape or form. But just in case not, where can people get a hold of you or, you know, if they want to talk to you or, uh, you know, Twitter or website or anything like that? Uh, I used to do Twitter and I dumped it. I just got sick of. I just got sick of it. And I don't do Facebook. That's I've never done Facebook. And uh, I mean, you can reach me on my email. I guess i carter one three nine one at gmail dot com. Just send me an email and yeah. If you want Google to read it, if you, <laughs> if you 
you want the NSA to follow you and Google, <laughs> then please reach out to me because I'm, I'm officially being watched now for this entire podcast. But <laughs> yeah, just so, talk, just even talking to me on Skype is enough to get you on the list, man. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's, <laughs> but yeah, that would be the easiest way to reach out to me. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, whatever you want to talk about, just feel free to email me. I'm pretty, pretty easy going guy to talk to. So yeah, cool. Well, it was great to have you on, man, and uh, hope to speak to you soon. I right, appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Have a good one. Pretty interesting chat, I thought. He's got a lot to say and uh, look forward to speaking to Isaac again in the future. He was speaking to me with his laptop mic, so it wasn't the kind of uh, best quality, but I thought it was uh, good enough. And um, I wasn't expecting him to have that kind of southern drawl. He said that he was from Washington or in Washington, so I had assumed that he would just have a kind of East Coast accent, but uh, that was quite funny. Well, yeah, uh, good to have him on. So I had a bit of feedback over the last month. The first one, Lee asked what mics I use for the pub meetup recording. And the answer to that is I used my recorder, my Zoom H4N recorder, with two mics plugged into it. One of them was an SM58, your kind of standard stage mic. And I couldn't find another SM58. I think I might have had a second one at some point, but... I couldn't find it, so I actually used the D112, which I think is a Shaw mic as well, which uh, is kind of nicknamed the Egg. It's kind of a kick drum mic, but essentially it's very similar to the SM58, and you wouldn't really know the difference. It just picks up a lot more bottom end, which is why it's ideal for kick drums. So I just EQ'd that off, and they sound pretty much the same. Uh, so if you see the photo of it, you'll see one of them looks a bit weird, but ultimately it sounded okay. And Lee also mentioned that it stood out that I was driving Mintcast 219. Yeah, well, that's good. I think I edited that one as well. I can't remember now. But um, yeah, it was a different experience. I haven't done it again since, but I will again soon, hopefully. And he said, the time you spend editing shows is outrageous. I'm not surprised something has to give. Fair play. Yeah, people are often very surprised how long it takes to do editing. but that's just the way it is. If you want to do it properly, you have to be patient. It's not particularly skillful work. And I reckon anyone can do it. You you can learn to do it in a few minutes, really. It's just a case of having the patience to do it and spend the time. And most podcasts don't bother with that. And fair enough, it, they don't want to spend the time doing it. So, you know, they just try and record it live and leave the dead air and the ums and ahs in. Whereas I just prefer to listen to stuff that's well edited and I'm too much of a perfectionist, really. I'd rather either do it properly or not do it. So there you go. Uh, And he said, on the recurring DJ theme, I thought the best program I heard was Mark and Lard, which is Mark Radcliffe and Mark Riley on BBC Radio 1 years ago. Evidence that not every DJ had to toe the line, but now, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah, there were times when people on the radio could do what they wanted, but I think post-Russell Brand, uh, for the international listeners, you probably have heard of Russell Brand, but he used to do a radio show on the BBC, Radio 2, I think, and he had a bit of a controversy where he phoned up this old actor guy's um, voicemail and left him messages about um, the relationships he's had with the actor's granddaughter, and it was all a bit of a kerfuffle. It didn't actually... There wasn't a controversy at the time. It was only a few months later when the Daily Mail picked up on it and decided to just that it was a slow news day or something. 
and got him sacked. And it, the BBC was in real dire straits as a result of it. So I think post that, they're looking for very safe people. They don't want anyone with any edge or stuff. So I don't fancy my chances. Not that I'm particularly edgy or anything, but they just they want you to toe the line, really. And I just don't think I'd be happy doing that. That's why I'd much prefer to do independent broadcasting. I mean, I'd love to, to do something like Patreon, but the bottom line is there's just not enough people to... Uh, listen to me and I'm not popular enough to do that. But I see people like Nixie Pixel earning like really good money, like a serious salary out of just that, not to mention any other appearances, media appearances and stuff. And her YouTube channel probably makes her some money. And just if only I was a good looking woman, eh? Rather than a big fat, ugly bloke. Oh, well. Right. Jason Connolly said, uh, Joe, I got an error message. No doubt my fault when I tried to respond on the episode seven page of your website. So I figured I'd send you the message as an email just in case. Now I installed capture. I just got so sick of all the spam comments that I installed capture, but I did it late at night, I think, or just as I was about to go out and didn't really test that it was working properly. And I still haven't really tested that it was working properly. After I got this email, I checked and sure enough, it didn't work. I tried to post comments, and I meant to deal with it, and then I just didn't because I was so busy. And then I started getting comments again. I got emails kind of to say, approve this comment. So I don't know what changed, whether it's working or not. I suppose I ought to have a look into it. If I've got some time over the next couple of days, I will. But then I'm going to get really, really busy again after that. So, yeah, probably the best way to get a hold of me, joerestpodcast.gmail.com. But if you wouldn't mind testing the comments out, if you've got stuff to say first, and if that doesn't work, then send it to me in an email. I know it's a hassle, but um, that'd kind of help me out. But Jason said that it was about the Ubuntu podcast, and he a lot of people got in contact about the Ubuntu podcasts, and yeah, it's great to see it back. And some people are saying that it's a bit different, and which it is because they're not in the same room anymore, and Tony's gone, so the dynamics changed a little bit. But it's been pretty good so far, I think. And Dad Martin Wimpress on there, I think on the last one, and that was pretty good. So yeah, if you're into Linux podcasts, which you presumably are, if you're listening to me talking to you now, and you haven't checked it out, do check it out. It's um, it's a good show. And he said to me, Jason said, "I'm a Christian, but I appreciate the point of view you've put forth on this podcast. I agree that there is much value in teaching children about all religions in school." If children grow up understanding the practices of Sikhs or Mormons or Muslims or Christians, it should cut back on some of the current misunderstandings, mistrust, and even hate that we currently see. To some degree, this also applies to ethnic and cultural practices. Of course, this takes a few generations to work, and if kids go home to prejudice parents, it can undermine this, but it would be a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's what I've kind of always said, that if kids are forced to learn about well, not forced, but just in school, they learn about all religions. Then I think eventually everyone's going to come around to my opinion that there is no God and that you may as well enjoy this life because it's the only one you get. But I think that it's a pretty soft sell because who can argue that it's a good thing to teach kids about, you know, anything to, to inform people about other cultures. And so I think that I see religion as a problem even Christianity, and I'm kind of sorry to say that, Jason, but I think that 
any belief without evidence is not a good idea, really. And there is no evidence, as far as I can see, for the existence of God or the miracles of Jesus. And, and that goes for all of religion. I'm not bashing Christianity in particular. And so I would like to live in a world of atheism where people are, do good things because they want to do good things rather than because they're scared that they're going to be judged by an invisible man in the sky. But I think you can sell the idea to most religions, maybe not some of the more extreme ones, but it's surely a good thing. And he also finally brought up some good points in agreement with me about Charlie Hebdo. So yeah, thanks a lot for that, Jason. Mr. Sterling said, I couldn't tell Jesse was wasted for half of that show. And this was referring to, it must have been a couple of months ago now, where Jesse was day drinking with his friend on the Friday and then came and we recorded the Ubuntu phone bit, which is one of the more popular episodes that we've done for a while. So it was a bit of a extra annoyance that it wasn't just something boring. It was something that a lot of people seem to be interested in. And he also said, I swore I would never give the Joe Rest podcast a chance, but here I am. <laughs> I don't know how to take that, really. Uh, and then another comment, he said, I really like the editing in the Linux Luddites podcast. The flow and crisp production makes it superior to all other Linux podcasts. Cha-ching. I shouldn't have really said that. I should have cut that bit out. But it's um, the reason I left it in was he also said, maybe if there was a way to trust others to assist with editing segments. Now, I don't really trust anyone else to do it is the bottom line, because it's not just, it isn't just taking out the ums and ahs and dead air. That is a big part of it, but there's also a kind of production aspect of it where sometimes I cut out sections that are irrelevant, and that takes judgment to do that. If it was, if I was perfectly happy with everything that had been said, but it just needed to be tidied up, then potentially I could farm that out to someone else. But the fact is, Paddy does an awful lot of work already with the pre-production and the website stuff. And so I don't really want to dump it on him. I don't think he'd be willing to do it. And Jesse doesn't really have much interest in doing that, I don't think. So it's kind of down to me. I have said that I would do it. I started doing it, and that's just the way it is, really. But I do like to moan about it, but I think that it's worth it. And a lot of people do say to me that they appreciate it. And I actually discovered another Linux podcast last night called Sysadmins Trivia. And I thought, oh, here we go. They've only done four episodes. But I listened to it, and it was an interview. The latest one was an interview with Elizabeth K. Joseph, who we spoke to on Linux Luddites early on, and she is part of the Zubuntu team. And I noticed that the editing in that was really patient. I mean, I, you, I can say good, but it's, I don't see it as good. It's just you either have the patience and time or you don't. And they had spent a lot of time on it. And I thought that I would tell them about that. And they were appreciative on Twitter, which was nice. And I think that it really does make a big difference. But it's just how seriously do you take it, you know? But I've spoken enough about that anyway. So, yeah, as I said, joyrestpodcast.gmail.com or leave a comment on the website. Who knows when I'm going to be doing this again. Coming up next then, well, we, there's no Mintcast coming out because we didn't do it this weekend because of Easter. So that'll be in another couple of weeks and Linux Luddites at the end of the week. And apart from that, nothing of great interest. So who knows when I'll speak to you again. But until then, see you later.